my name is Rene Rivera. I am a man with a girl's name. Thank you. <laughs> I grew up a tough, tough kid. Uh, we are, I am part of the men's ministry leadership group. It's an honor to see so many active men uh, showing up tonight. I'm specifically tasked with the GM6. Got my six, got my back small group development. And if you need to get in small group, reach out to me. I have the incredible privilege tonight of introducing Kent Whitaker. Tonight's theme is storm warning. We're in hurricane season right now. And as you know, Houston residents watch the Gulf every time a storm gets into the Yucatan Peninsula. We, uh, we brace for it. We prepare for it. We look at the satellite imagery. We brace for what's going to happen or what could not happen. How, who, were, who was on the road during Rita? I was. 21 hours. Talk about a bladder. Okay? <laughs> Many of you here today can testify from personal experience in life. Storms will come and they affect everyone. Young, old, married, single, widower, divorced. The storms will come. We can accept this safe assumption, however, with challenges in our personal lives is the lack of warning signs. Most of the time, unlike our annual hurricane season, we do not have personal lighthouses. We don't have satellite imagery. We don't have early warning signs. We don't have the ability to watch what's coming. Apple will never create an iPhone app that will alert us to what God is going to do and already knows in our life. Am I right? But he does give us a relationship with him. And he does bring people into our lives that allow us, he brings men into our lives that allow us to face adversity and go through the storms of life. As Christians, we aren't shielded from the storms of life. We are almost guaranteed them. Can I get an amen? Our Heavenly Father will weave into our into the tapestry of our lives disasters and tragedy, tragedy that will ultimately bless us or those around us and bring Him glory. Whether you are here tonight and have a relationship with Jesus Christ or not, be prepared. Storms are coming your way. They will come your way. Tonight we have an amazing honor and privilege, and I have... <laughs> to have our speaker, Kent Whitaker, with us tonight. We've been trying to get him for a couple of years now, and I'm so glad he's here. I think the timing is absolutely perfect. Uh, Mr. Whitaker authored the New York Times bestseller book, Murder by Family. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's a personal story, but he'll be the first to tell you it's God's story. It's an amazing story. It's a story of hatred and evil that evolved into murder, a tragic story that transformed a husband into a widower, but a story that ultimately ended in forgiveness. It's a story of God's amazing sovereignty and how he guided Kent through what I would describe as an unimaginable storm. I was blessed by it. It took me four hours to read it. I got the book, opened it at one o'clock. I was done by five. I had never done that in my life. The book spoke to me. It blessed me. And I am just thankful for the obedience of Kent Whitaker. He's here to share his story with us. Please welcome Kent Whitaker. Thank you, Renee. Thank you, everybody. Wow. I've forgotten how intense that scene was. <laughs> Thank you. 
I'm not sure I want to go for a cruise anytime soon. <laughs> Let's switch gears a little bit and change movies, though, can we? I guess most of us have seen the movie Braveheart. Well, there's a scene in there where William Wallace is speaking to the ragtag Scottish army just about when a lot of them are about to sneak off and go home because they have just seen the vast English army that has been sent to quell their rebellion and they're afraid. Well, English, um, sorry, uh, William Wallace points out that they may uh, live a little bit longer if they run off. But what would be the cost? Slavery? The loss of their daughters to some English gentleman's prerogative? Their crops? Their self-respect? Well, those are stinging words for sure. But the English are still there. And I wonder, how would you have answered that? And the only reason I ask is because that kind of sacrificial leadership is what goes to the heart of what it means to be a man. How do we lead our families? How do we best protect them? How do we respond to those curveballs that come flying in once in a while? Does leading our families include facing things in the world that should be opposed, but which may carry a heavy price tag? Variations on these kind of questions have been asked thousands of times over the years whenever men are called to defend those that they love. And guys, every one of us here is going to have to face them at one point or another. Now the men's group here at First Baptist calls itself the Band of Brothers. And as Christians, that's what we are. Because we stand together, we watch each other's back, and we give meaning to what the phrase be my brother's keeper really means. Down through history, there have been a lot of us. 200 years ago, there was a band of brothers who pledged themselves to each other in the name of freeing their families and country from oppression. And nearly every one of the men that signed that Declaration of Independence lost either their lives, or their fortunes, or both. But look at the legacy that they gave us. A few years later, in our own backyard, Colonel William Travis scratched a line in the sand at a place called the Alamo and challenged the 140 Texians there that there was no shame if they wanted to go home. But if anybody wanted to stand with him and oppose Santa Ana, well, he'd appreciate the coming. They all did, and 12 days later, they all paid the ultimate price. They were a band of brothers, too. But the greatest example of a man who gave his life for love and freedom is our Lord Jesus Christ. Because while the victories that William Wallace, Patrick Henry, and Jim Bowie bought with their lives, they were really only limited in nature because given enough time, they will be forgotten. But the victory that Christ won on Calvary, that expands and reaches all of us, wherever we are, whenever we are all the way down through the corridors of time and into eternity. <coughs> Jesus Christ is the man that God calls us to imitate. Now we live in a culture that rewards caution, inaction, and blaming somebody else whenever something goes wrong. And I don't think that's what God intended for us. I think He calls us to be bold and to lead our families. And I think we need to be reminded of that because it's so easy to forget. And when we do forget, we, we have given up our leadership role that God has given us. This is my reminder. 
Pretty cool, huh? I keep that over in my fireplace in the living room because I see it every day many times. And I use it to remind me of why we're here. Because as a man, God tells us that He is going to take an accounting of how we lead our families. He calls us to protect them. To protect them spiritually, physically, financially, and morally. And I use this to remind me of how I can do that. A couple of ways. First of all, if you'll notice, it's shaped like a cross. And that reminds me that it is through the cross that my strength and my victory would come, and not through my own efforts. Secondly, it's a weapon. And that reminds me that I am to stand ready at a moment's notice to step into the gap and to protect my family against any and every danger whether it's physical or whether it's one of those nasty little attacks that our culture likes to bring on our value system. But it's complicated because even as we stand in the gap, we know that there are things that life can throw at us that we just can't defend. There's some things that we just can't fix. How do we prepare for those? I think it takes two things. Vigilant watchfulness and preparation. Now back in my former life, we had a saying in the construction company that every accident had a warning sign that somebody either ignored or didn't see. When our guys were properly trained and when everybody developed the habit of looking for problems, our job site accidents went to nothing. And I think it's pretty much the same way in our personal lives too. Now the vigilant part could cover a lot of things. And it would maybe... You know, parental controls on computers or the television. Uh, getting to know your kids' friends. Having uh, consistent visits with their teachers. But it also includes things like elevating your wife and your marriage to something high in your priority list. And for spending time with your kids, just moving around having fun. And if you want to know how to prepare, take a lesson from hurricane season. Let me ask you. If I went out to buy plywood when there was a Category 4 10 miles off the Galveston's coast, how much good would that do? Not much, because it would be a little late, wouldn't it? And the same principle applies to storms that come up in our lives, too. We have to be prepared early before they arrive. Well, the obvious question there is, most of my life storms don't happen in warning. Even if I'm vigilant, they just explode and there they are. How can we, as biblical leaders of our families, prepare for something that you can't prepare for? <coughs> the way to prepare for life is to learn what God has to say about it in His Word, the Bible, and to develop a relationship with Him now. Memorize some verses that will help you focus on Him when you would only be able to focus on the problem. Because in those times of crisis, in that fog, we just can't think clearly. And if you have memorized verses, that will help you gain your footing. This seems so simple and elementary. But in my experience, I have found that it is the most effective thing that you can do for you or your family's preparation for life. Because a relationship with the Lord works on anything. doesn't matter what the details are. And the best way to develop that kind of a relationship with the Lord 
is to memorize the scripture. Without that foundation, we feel so lost and alone. And when we feel alone, it is almost impossible to trust in things that you can't see or hold yourself. And yet that is the most important time of all for us to trust God and to listen to what He has to say instead of trusting in our own strength. Memorized verses can actually help with that. And the memory part's important because even if you know where to find things in the Bible, sometimes you just don't have the time or the resources to do that. If you wake up in a strange hotel, choking on smoke, without electricity, it doesn't do you much good to know that there's an escape route printed on the back of the door somewhere. When we're buffeted by life, gentlemen, it is critical to already have a foundation in the Word of God so that we can stand on it when the tornado hits. Well, believe me, I can identify with that firsthand. My worst day was December 10th of 2003. And it was my faith and the relationship that I had with God already and a few memorized Bible verses that helped me get through that nightmare into a brand new day. And I'd like to take you with me as I go back and relive that night because I'd like to show you some things that God has taught me about what to do and how to respond when life just falls out from under your feet and why it's so important to have that foundation of the Lord and why we should trust His Word even when it doesn't make any sense. Now that night began normally enough for me. My wife Trisha called me as I was driving home from work to say that our older son Bart had finished his exams and wanted to go out and celebrate his upcoming college graduation. We went out, had a great dinner at Papado's, came back in high spirits. Our younger son Kevin, who was 19, led the way to the door, I followed Trisha, and Bart went down to get his cell phone out of his car. When Kevin opened the door and stepped inside, there was a loud noise, followed by Trisha saying, Oh no, and another loud noise. Now I grew up in Texas, and I've been around guns all my life. But I honestly didn't realize that those noises were gunshots. The idea that there might be an assassin in my own house was just so bizarre it didn't compute. I stepped up to the front door and looked inside to see what was happening. All the lights in the house were gone, were out, but the street light showed a single figure, maybe eight feet away, with a ski mask. Now, as a relatively intelligent person, you would assume that my first reaction was fear, but it wasn't. My reaction was, I wondered which one of Kevin's goofball friends was playing a trick on us with the paintball gun. Well, the next moment I was hit hard in the right chest, spun around, and landed on my back on the front porch. There was a searing pain in my right arm, and that's when comprehension came. Those noises had been gunshots, and there had been three of them, one for each of us. Before I had a chance to call out to see if Bart was all right, there was a fourth blast from farther inside the house, and I thought, my God, he shot all of us. Why? It's a weird feeling to realize that you may actually be dying. I sent a quick prayer up to heaven and told God that if it was my time, I was ready, but to please protect my family. I called out to each one, but got no answers. 
except for some quiet, wet coughs coming from Tricia. Now, I'd never heard those kind of coughs before, but instinctively, I knew they were the sound of someone trying to clear their lungs from filling with blood. I looked down at my own chest, and I saw a rapidly expanding stain coming out from under the edge of my jacket, turning my shirt bright red. Well, it was only moments before the police were there, and then the paramedics. Three began working on me to try to stop the bleeding, but nobody would tell me anything about my family. Until I overheard two policemen speaking to each other as they rushed in the house. One of them asked the other, What do you want to do about the DOA? Well, it was at that point that I realized at least one of my family was dead. Maybe all by now. I didn't know. I started to shake and realized I was going into shock. Well, Trish and I both were life-flighted by helicopter to the medical center. And Bart joined me there a few minutes later by ambulance. Now later I learned that they'd stopped working on Trish about halfway through the flight. And that Kevin had died almost instantly right inside my front door. Now later that night, when I was finally by myself, I was wrestling with my emotions. They were all over the place. Now there was this crushing numbness of loss. There was this anger, this fury, and this deep desire for revenge. All I wanted to do was to hurt this person who had stolen my entire life. And I was mad at God. I was furious. Romans 8.28 is an important verse to me because it has helped me through hard times so many times. And it promises, it promises that God will take everything and work it for good for those of us who believe in Him and are called to His service. And I thought, that's a lie. There isn't any way, there's no scenario where God could take the murders of my wife and son and work them for good. And I wondered, what else was I trusting in the Bible that would turn out to be a lie? Just what I needed. I might as well take my faith and throw it right out the window. But I knew, I needed God now more than I ever had in my life. I couldn't imagine what it would be like living the next week, much less the next year, without His guidance or shining His light so I'd know how to pass through this valley. And I also remembered that I had challenged people for years, telling them that faith is an act of willpower. It doesn't have anything to do with your feelings, because your feelings, guys, will lie to you. They'll get you to make bad decisions. Faith is when you know what God wants you to do, but you don't want to do it. And you do it anyway, because you trust Him to be faithful in what He promises. And I wondered, was I going to be the man of faith that I challenged so many other people to be over the years. There really was only one answer. I told God that I didn't know how He was going to do it, but that I believed that somewhere with somebody or something, that He was going to do something for good that He would not have achieved without allowing the murders to take place. Well, the instant that I had that resolved and told God that I trusted Him, He did a very strange thing. He placed a specific word-for-word sentence in my mind. Now, I didn't understand this. It was as strange to me as it probably sounds to you. I'm just telling you what happened that night. I communicate with God pretty much the same way that y'all do. When I pray, sometimes there's this little, little twitch in the back of my mind. 
it will show me that I should be thinking about this. Or sometimes I'll be reading the Bible and a verse will jump out at me as an answer to a question I've had. But I've only had God put a specific sentence in my mind once before in my life, and that was 20 years earlier. And yet, He was going to do two of them that night. The first one was, good, now what about the shooter? Reading between the lines, I realized he was encouraging me for trusting him in the Romans 8.28 thing. But he was asking, are you going to trust me in the other hard stuff? How about the vengeance is mine, saith the Lord? Or pray for those who persecute you. How would I do with those? And man, I saw where he was going and I hated it. He was leading me right down that road and at the end of it, he was going to ask me to forgive this guy. And I knew I couldn't do it. All I wanted to do was introduce him to my friend Mr. Baseball Bat. But I knew that's what he wanted me to do. And I told him, Father, you built me. You know this is impossible. I can't forgive somebody who's done this. But I know you want me to. So I'm going to ask you to help me. You tell me I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, okay. I'm asking you to strengthen me through Christ. Help me. I want to forgive. I want to want to forgive this guy. And the moment I did that, he sent another word my way. And I don't understand this. This is strange to me too. But that second sentence was even weirder than the first one. It was, I want whoever's responsible to repent and stand next to Trisha, Kevin, and I in heaven, singing praises to the Lord. Talk about bizarre. I don't know where that thing came from because I promise you it wasn't me five seconds ago. And yet I looked at my heart and I realized it was true. There had been this warm glow, is all I can describe it, that flowed over me. And when it finished, all the desire for revenge and hatred were gone. And in its place was a complete and total forgiveness for this absolute stranger. Don't ask me why I did it. Normally we have to do things the hard way, don't we? Whenever we're faced with big challenges in life, we pray about it, turn it over to God time and time again, keep praying and keep praying, and eventually we'll wake up one morning and realize He's changed our hearts. Why He chose to do it in an instant like that, I couldn't tell you. Then again, I didn't know why I was still alive. I should have died that night. Well, the next day, I learned what might be going on. The police told me they'd found out that my son Bart really wasn't about to graduate from college after all. In fact, he wasn't even in school that semester. And he had become the number one suspect for having arranged the shootings to hide failures in school. Now, those of you guys out there that are parents, how's that for a nightmare? Well, I didn't believe it for an instant. But at the same time, I knew that Bart's faith was not as strong as Trisha's or Kevin's or mine. And if he was going to face an investigation that might actually turn into a trial one day, he was going to need somebody in his life, an anchor, a rock, someone who would be there through it all for him, someone who could show him how to draw strength from faith. So when we went home from the hospital two days later, I went home knowing my son was a suspect and may actually have been responsible for the deaths of his mother and brother in the attempt on my life as well. But 
I went home without those feelings of fear and condemnation or suspicion. And that would have been impossible if I had not resolved the question of forgiveness before I found out that my son might be one of the people I'd have to forgive. And that innocent forgiveness allowed me to do something that I never would have been able to do otherwise, which was to model for him the unconditional love that God has for every one of his fallen sinners and children. And I remembered the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son and his dad. And I realized that father displayed that kind of love to his son. And here I was in a position of doing the same thing for my son too. Now you all know the story. The son gets his inheritance and runs off for a life of wine, women, and song. And after he squanders everything, he realizes his mistake and he decides to go back home. His dad, who loves him and has been praying for him to return, has been watching. And when he sees him, he accepts him back into the family unconditionally. And God loves us the same way. That's what that story is all about. It's a description of how God the Father loves all of us as His wayward kids. And He forgives us unconditionally when we come back to Him. So Bart and I entered a, I guess you'd call it a uh, discipleship period. For seven months, he and I spent time every day reading the Bible, reading other books and praying and talking about the deep things of our religion, such as sin, what it is, we're all covered with it, God being holy, and He's not. And that creates the big problem for us. The first problem is that God being holy cannot exist where there's sin. And if we die with that sin on our souls, even if He wants to include us, He can't because He's allergic to it. Heaven's His house, and He's not going to let sin in. It's not a matter of doing enough good deeds. It's not a matter of balance where you have more good things than bad. It's not about whether or not you're better than your neighbor or not. It's whether you have any sin on your soul at all or not. And that creates problem number two. Because we can't clean that stuff off ourselves. There aren't enough good deeds from the beginning of time till the end of it to clean off one person's sin. Jesus is the way we get our souls clean. And that is the way God set up for us, set it up, so that we might have a chance at a relationship with Him. And it's, it is powerful enough to pay for everything that anyone has ever done, including the sins of a son who arranges for his parents' death. I thought it was important that he be reminded of this story, even though he'd heard it all his life. Because I thought maybe if he really is responsible for this, for the first time now, he may actually be recognizing what it might mean to him personally. Well, he was listening. But the investigation was also closing in around him. So one night, seven months after the shootings, he walked downstairs and out the front door and out of my life for 15 months. Now, I didn't know where he'd gone. I didn't even know if he was still alive. Later, I found out that he'd run off to the mountains of Mexico 
And while he was there, he digested those seven months. And he realized, he came to the conclusion, that he really did not want to go back to the darkness where he lived for so long. And he said, you know, if goofball dad, with all of his faults and problems, if he can love me unconditionally, maybe I need to give God the Father another chance. And he did. He told God he was sorry and asked for his forgiveness. So, 15 months later, when he returned to Texas to face charges, he did so a different person. Everyone who knew him saw those changes in him. So even though he will be executed by the state of Texas sometime in the next probably 18 months, if he has truly accepted Christ as his Savior and accepted that gift that God offers to every one of us, and I believe he has, then he will be welcomed into heaven. So while the consequences of Bart's actions are still there, God is a God of redemption and healing and forgiveness. And he can redeem anything even our big mistakes. Let's go back for a minute and see how he worked in this. First of all, I remembered a promise that, that God had given us that he would, you know, the Romans 8, 28 thing. And that created a question. Was it true or was it not? Once I chose to trust God, even when it didn't make sense, God started a series of things into motion that was going to lead to my son having an opportunity at a second chance in a relationship with him. Do you remember that second sentence that God gave me? I want whoever's responsible to stand next to Tricia, Kevin, and I in heaven singing praises to the Lord. It was months, and I told that many times to people, it was months before I realized I had left Bart out of that family portrait. But I had he was this guy over here on the side who needed to repent and ask Christ's forgiveness. And if he has truly taken advantage of that, then he will be standing in heaven with his mother and his brother and his dad. Do you see? Do you see how God took the silver tent and worked it for good? Not just in a broad sense, as in me speaking here tonight, or thousands and thousands of people reading the book or seeing Oprah and all those other things. Not just that, but he made Romans 8.28 apply directly to me. He gave me the greatest desire in my heart, which is that my family would be together in eternity. Can you see how close I came to missing it? The forgiveness to the total stranger only happened after I chose to trust him when it didn't make any sense. And the forgiveness of the total stranger was necessary for me to go home and display that unconditional love. And the display of the unconditional love was the only thing that would have gotten him to have given God another chance. In my story, trusting God when it didn't make any sense was the key. Well, nothing else would have happened like it did if I hadn't made that first decision. But how about the rest of us here? Isn't there somebody that everybody in this room needs to forgive, even if it's yourself? Well, I think we do. The kicker is, of course, that we know that God normally doesn't work like he did with me that night. He normally doesn't give this instant forgiveness stuff. So how do you forgive in the real world situations? 
and make no mistake about it, it's important that we do forgive. Because it is only through forgiving the people that hurt us that we are actually healed. Forgiveness is a gift that you give yourself. And you will never heal from the wounds that you receive until you engage it. Real, true forgiveness only comes from God. But once you've asked Him to help you, there are some things that we can do to help Him. One of the things that I think is the most powerful is to write a letter to whoever it was that's offended you. List everything in there that they've taken from you in detail. And when you get to the bottom, you write down there, I choose to forgive you. And sign it. Maybe you'll mail it. Maybe you won't. Maybe the person you write it to has been dead for a hundred years. I don't know. The important thing is, that is a covenant that you've made with yourself. It's a ceremony that has a great deal of power to it. And when you sign your name, you have promised that you are going to do this forgiveness. And it changes you in your heart. I have done this with my son. I did it with the shooter. And I've done it with others. And I'm telling you, it's powerful. Another thing you can do is to ask God over and over again to help you want to want to forgive. And over time, He will change your heart. And you'll realize one morning that all that hatred and anger is gone. But I think, as we near the end of this talk, maybe the best way to talk about forgiveness is to explain some things that forgiveness is not. For one thing, forgiveness is not the actual healing of the wound. Healing comes from God. What forgiveness does, though, is it cleans it out, which allows the Holy Spirit to come in and do the actual, actual healing. When somebody wounds us, there's this deep and painful wound there that if we hold on to revenge, or if we try to get even, it becomes infected. It can't heal. And I'll tell you, it will poison you for the rest of your life. But when you forgive them, that cleans the wound out, and God can heal it. The other person is responsible for the wound in the first place, but we are responsible for the infection and any delay in our healing. Another thing that forgiveness is not is forgiving. You know the old saying, forgive and forget. Well, a lot of people don't want to try to forgive because they think that means that they need to forget. And sometimes what people have done to us is so large that you can't. In fact, I think it's sometimes if uh, if we are uh, able to forgive some things, it's more of an indication that it's uh, it's really denial, and that has its own set of problems. If you were abused from the time you were eight years old, that wasn't trivial. We cannot forget things like that. So if your business partner steals from you. You forgive him, but you don't have to go back into business with him. And forgiveness isn't canceling the other person's responsibility for what they did. It isn't letting them off the hook for the consequences of their actions. It doesn't mean that we don't try to stop a mad dog from hurting someone else. What it does mean, though, is that if your business partner steals from you, you may have to alert the authorities but you don't take the revenge on yourself, on it yourself. And guys, we like to do that, don't we? We like to do things ourselves. It's part of the hard wiring that God gave us so that we could go out and fix problems. 
But sometimes when people hurt us, we flash. And before we know it, we realize we're out trying to fix it by trying to exact revenge. I don't know, maybe your boss or another co-worker or your wife or kids. Or maybe you're like me. And it's just that idiot going 55 plugging up the fast lane on the freeway. But whatever the details, God is very clear when he tells us that we are to forgive and leave the vengeance stuff to him. Have you ever wondered why he pounds on that so much? Turn the other cheek. Pray for those who, who persecute you. And this may be one of the biggest lessons I've learned through this whole thing. And I only saw it through the rearview mirror. God hates revenge and vengeance so much because it is so damaging to our relationship with Christ. It denies the power of the cross. It says even the sacrifice of God himself is not enough to pay for what this person did. So if you guys really want to leave your families, if you really want to lead in the marketplace, then get rid of all that getting and stuff. Throughout the Bible, God honors and works through mankind's obedience. And I don't believe He's changed the way He operates. Anybody feeling trapped? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's because you've let revenge or something like that get in the way of you and your relationship with the Lord. What I do know is that obedience to God always leads to freedom. And the things I've been talking about tonight have set me free. I've been set free to rejoin life, and I have found joy again. I have remarried, and I'm free to live a life of adventure, because I have seen how faithful God is. And I've seen how big He is. He's a big enough God for everything. I have been set free to lead my family without fear. So in conclusion, guys, let me challenge you. Be vigilant and watch you for problems in your family and in your relationships. Prepare for storms by memorizing Scripture and developing a relationship with God now while you can. Trust God even when it doesn't make sense. When His Word tells you something that in your own mind doesn't seem to make any sense, He still said it. His Word is alive and it hasn't changed. And forgive those who hurt you, keeping in mind the things that forgiveness is not. And remember, realize that you are not alone. God's got your back. And you've got this band of brothers around you too. Just like Colonel Travis at the Alamo, God has drawn a line in the sand and He wants to know if you're going to join Him with your whole heart on this great adventure He's got designed for you. But first He wants to know if you're all in. I hope that everyone here would respond as a man did long, long ago when asked how he would lead his family. May we all say, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Thank you all very much. May God keep and protect you.
Exactly. So, guys, let's pray, and I thank you for the time that he spent with us. Lord Jesus, you are amazing. We love you and praise you. You are the author of storms as well as peace. We know that your goal for our lives is to for us to be the person you want us to be for your glory. God, we thank you for the story that was just shown, uh, told to us, the story that is your story about forgiveness. And we thank you for Ken and his lovely wife, Tanya, for coming to share it in this stormy weather. Lord, there are storm warnings. May we be, may we persevere through your strength, through your guidance, and may all the glory go to you. In your son's holy, precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.